First Chronicles 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and the wood for the wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various colors. And all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. Namely, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings of gold for the gold and silver for the silver. That is all the work done by the craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? And then the rulers of the father's households and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers over the king's work offered willingly. And for the service of the house of God they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of brass and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Yehiel, the Gershonite. And then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart, and King David also rejoiced greatly. Father, we see great joy in this chapter. Great joy in this period in David's life, when with the people a great offering was made. Father, may we learn how to have joy in the offering. May we learn, Lord, what it truly means to be givers with whole hearts who are enthusiastic and thrilled at opportunities we have before us to give to You. Father, and yes, to Your treasury, to the work of the building of Your kingdom. May we know that joy along with all the other joy that You call us to, the the happiness, the blessedness of walking with Jesus and all that peace, I pray, Father, that You will instill in us the joy of the offering. Help us to grasp these things and understand. And Father, I pray for anything in our hearts that might bar us from understanding the context and the content of what You have for us this morning. Lord, would You, by Your powerful Holy Spirit, set it aside so we can hear truth and walk in Your righteousness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two men were shipwrecked on an island. And awareness of their plight settled in, and one of them began weeping and moaning, crying out, We're going to die! We're going to die! There's no food! There's no water! We're going to die! The second man just leaned back lazily against a palm tree, put his hands behind his head, Relaxed. And the second man, or the first man, began yelling at the second man, Don't you get it? We're going to die. The second man said, Dude, you don't understand. I make $100,000 a week. The first man looked at him dumbfounded and said, What difference does that make? What are you going to buy bottled water on this island? You're going to purchase our next meal? Your money means nothing here. And the second man answered, Look, I make $100,000 a week and I tithe. I give 10% to my church. That's $10,000 every week. And the first man was still a bit confused. So the second man said, Look, I give $10,000 a week to my church. Believe me, my pastor will find me. There would be no humor in that story if people didn't from time to time think along those lines. If we didn't have that sense of the pastor or the church having its hand out, trying to get into our wallets. If we didn't have that sense, we wouldn't laugh at that joke and go, well, well, of course, yeah, I want my pastor to find me. I'd like the church to know where I am so that I can continue 
in my commitment to give. Now, I don't know what any of you give. I've said that before. And that's between you and the Lord. But I need to say, if you have a problem with the mention of money in church, you are going to have a problem with Jesus. Because He talked about money quite a bit. As a matter of fact, over in Luke chapter 16, Jesus calls money unrighteous wealth. Not because money in and of itself is dirty, but because money in and of itself has no intrinsic power to righteousness. Contrary to popular belief of the Jews in the day, the more you have does not mean the more righteous you are. And that belief has begun to find its way into our culture as well. That my money is my sign of success and rightness and goodness Jesus calls money unrighteous. It's not righteous. Unrighteous wealth. Money doesn't make good. Money is not proof. I know this is against the principles of capitalism, but money is not proof of success. If it were, so many who have so much would not be so grumpy. Three quick uh, points right out the gate before we get back to 1 Chronicles 29. From Jesus, three things that we need to know about money. First off, money is a useful tool. Jesus Himself declared it to be such. In Luke chapter 16, verse 9, after giving one of His more curious parables, which we won't touch today, Jesus said, I say to you, make friends for, yourself, for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Money's a useful tool. Jesus says if you have money, use it to make friends so they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. Now if that's confusing, let me simply explain. People will receive you into eternal dwellings because you spent your money on things eternal. You invested in the kingdom. There will be people saved because of financial decisions that some of you make even today. That's a way to use unrighteous wealth as a tool. A tool for the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with taking what you've been given and using it to bless others such that someone will walk up to you in heaven someday and say, praise God, you were so faithful in your giving because your giving built that church and when I saw it driving by, I went into that church and I got saved because you made a decision to use money as a tool. Unrighteous wealth. Use it, Jesus says. But don't use it to build your phony success. In fact, the second thing, not only is money a useful tool, but money will utterly tank. It will utterly tank. I love how Jesus says this. Make use of the means of, uh, uh, make friends by your, for yourself by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, not so that if it fails, but when it fails, there's a very powerful principle there. Your money's going to fail. Do we need any proof of that in our economy of the last 9 to 12 months? We have watched our money fail. China and several of the other eastern nations right now are calling for a one world currency. Or a different currency other than the dollar. Because for the first time in America's history, the nations of the world are looking at our money and saying, we don't think we can trust that anymore. It will fail. Money's a useful tool, but it will utterly tank. And number three, and listen to me, Jesus also says money is an underlying test of your faithfulness. Luke 16, verse 10, Jesus said, He who is faithful in very little things, in a very little thing is faithful also, no, he who is faithful, yes, in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing, is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus goes on to say, No servant can serve two masters. He will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now you can, however, take what you have and use it in service of God, in service of the kingdom. But you cannot service your money and service the Lord. And Jesus says the test of this is how you're spending it. Where it goes. 
how you emphasize it based on where you place it. Here's Jesus' point. What you have, however you've been blessed, use it for the kingdom. Use it for the kingdom. We all are going to have money to varying degrees. While it lasts, use it eternally. Jesus' principles on this point are undeniable. He says in another parable, gives the picture of a man building up and saving up in barns. That is not eternal investment. Setting it all aside and and developing a massive portfolio in which I can be proud and secure, your money's going to fail. That is not where we have been told as followers of Jesus Christ to put our money. Invest in eternal things. Things that will last forever. Not your homes. Not our cars. Not our educations. Oh, all things that we could make a case for needing and using for the kingdom, but true investment in the things of the Lord. As we talk about this this morning, I challenge you to think about your attitude in giving. How do you give? David understood something that was unique, I think, among all the kings ever to live on the face of the earth. David had a sense, an understanding about money that's different and it's wonderful. And I think the Lord would have us reconsider the very idea of our offerings and David's perspective this morning. And this is not a message on tithing. I'm not going to sit here and proof text why everybody here should give 10%. And if you're uncomfortable already, you probably should be. But what this is a message about, and what I believe the teaching this morning, that the passage before us shows us, is how to give with the right attitude. I'm not talking about the right amount. I'm talking about the right attitude. Do you give to the Lord out of a sense of obligation? If so, let me warn you. Obligatory offerings all too quickly become legalistic routine. And can very easily lead to religious pride. If you're giving out of obligation, that is not the right attitude to give. Well, it's Sunday, got to write the check. Doing the bills, there it is. My... What I give, and I know it's more than most of the people here, that is not the right attitude. Do you give not only out of obligation, maybe some give that way, do you give begrudgingly when you give? Alright, done with it. Husbands, have you ever looked at your wives and said, just, you know, I know you got faith for this, but I'm the one who does the bills. Alright, here. Those who have hard feelings about giving are typically sporadic in their offerings at best. And when they do give, it tends to be accompanied by guilt or shame. Now the Bible tells us, Romans 10:11, whoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. So I can't help but feel like that applies to our giving as well. If you're giving out of shame, something's wrong because that shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be. Do you give to the Lord from a place of joy and enthusiasm? Now that's the right attitude. That is the heart the Lord, I believe, would develop in us. Now everybody tune in. Because one of the greatest missed opportunities in the church today is what I would call joy in the offering. I said before we began, this is a foundational faith principle that is sorely lacking in the church. We miss the whole concept. While we debate over tithe versus giving, while we talk about percentages and amounts, while we argue about whether we should have bank offerings or not, or how we should do it, we're missing this great principle. There is joy in the offering. The Lord gives us and shows us with David a completely different attitude. Not a ritualistic one, not a resentful one. In what I'm calling the great companion passage to our primary study this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to bounce back and forth. I'm going to pull a lot of verses just out of that section of 2 Corinthians 9 that parallel what happened here in 1 Chronicles 29. But from that place, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 9, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now you Bible students know the word cheerful. Is hilarion in the Greek. Hilarious giving. That is joyful giving. 
And that's where the Lord wants you to be faith-wise. He wants your giving to be of the stuff of joy. The question is, how do we learn to give that way? How do we get past the baggage? I, I know, by the way, that many people at the bridge, because I've had several conversations, many people at the bridge have come from other churches where there is baggage in their giving, where they were required to give 10%, or they were made to feel less righteous. Or there was a constant asking for money, 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 money. And they just got tired of it. And that may be you this morning. You may sit here and every time the whole giving sermon comes up, and I was that person sitting in the back of the church, and the pastor would start to talk about giving, and I would close my Bible and go, I don't have it, dude. Talk to the people who do. Of course, this is when I owned a house and had two cars. But I didn't have enough to give to the Lord. How do we get joy in the offering? How do we discover? And more than that, preserve the joyfulness in giving that I believe is obvious in Scripture that we see in the heart of David. Well, let's go back to 1 Chronicles 29 and walk it through. I'm going to give you three sections as an outline today as we consider joy in the offering. A generous example, a glad response, and a grateful prayer. And that will just help us follow through the Scriptures this morning. A generous example. Verse 1. Look at this again. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. He's talking about the temple. And he says, For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Note that. David makes the point of temple construction absolutely clear. It is a God thing, not a man thing. The purpose is not so Israel can have a great monument to attract tourist dollars. The point was that the Lord would be blessed, not the people. But does God need a house? People have asked that when we talk about the Troxel property and and building a church. Does God need a house? He doesn't need a church building. He can do without. Sure, He can. Others would say, God's not limited by wood and brick and stone. And in fact, in the Scriptures, 1 Chronicles 17.6, the Lord said, In all places where I have walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I might rest? Stephen, in his great sermon, Acts chapter 7, verse 46, not our Stephen, you know, different Stephen, said, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. That being the case, how can this David, this man after God's own heart, how can he make the case that the temple is not for man, but it's for the Lord God? In the same way, we can and should say the house we intend to build on Troxel Road is not for man, but for the Lord God. That's got to be the attitude, gang. I told you I'd remind you of this. This is not about us. It is all about the Lord. We build it as a house of prayer. We build it as a house of worship. We build it as a place of ministry, a center of fellowship and discipleship. All things intended ultimately not to bless us, but to bless the Lord. To honor our God and to pursue the kingdom. Make no mistake about it, we are not building a monument to ourselves any more than David was building a memorial to himself in all of his plans for the temple. Oh, I'm sure there were those in Israel who besmirched David's motives. There had to be. Among the people of Israel, some who showed up as David was laying out these principles for the temple, and in their hearts they're thinking, ah, David, you're just trying to leave your mark. You say it's for God, this isn't for God. He's got the tabernacle. He doesn't want a house anyway. It's just all about you, David. Well, we know better, don't we? David was able to approach the building of the temple with a pure heart. Part of the reason, this is just Rick, not the scripture, but part of the reason I think David was able to approach the building of the temple with a pure heart was because the Lord had said, you're not going to build it, David. So he truly was not going to get anything out of it himself. He would die before the first stone was laid. So David's motives were right on target. Verse 2. 
He says, now with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the gold, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, onyx stones and inlaid stones, or wood for wood, stones of antimony, stones of various color, and all kinds of precious stones, and alabaster in abundance. And it goes on and talks about the abundance. In fact, two Wednesday nights ago, we looked at this. David had amassed incredible wealth there in Israel through the spoils of war and also through tributes of the nations. And he dedicated all of it, with the exception of a couple little things, the vast majority of it he dedicated to the Lord. First Chronicles 18 verse 10 tells us, Hadoram brought all kinds of articles of gold and silver and bronze. And King David dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold which he had carried away from all the nations. What does that mean, dedicated to the Lord? It was sanctified for the Lord's use. It was temple treasures as far as David was concerned. 1 Chronicles 22.14 David said, Now behold, with great pains I prepared for the house of the Lord. And this is all that he had taken in. Tells us 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver, bronze and iron beyond weight for their in great quantity, and timber and stone I prepared. You may add to them. Now, we calculated this. If you were here two Wednesday nights ago, you, you remember this. But I want to give you the calculations again of what David had brought in either by tribute or spoils from the nations. 100,000 talents of gold by today's gold standard would be the equivalent, well, it was 3,750 tons of gold. By today's gold standard, that's $111 billion worth of gold that David amassed just for the building of a single structure. One million talents of silver is 37,500 tons of silver the equivalent of $16.5 billion today. And then he goes on to the bronze and the iron and the timber and the stone, which are too much to even weigh. They didn't even mess with that. There was so much. They probably at some point lost count and said, I forget it. We just know we have a lot. Why did David make such great provision for the temple? Why was he so passionate about amassing so much in terms of what Jesus would call unrighteous wealth? to be used in the building of the temple. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 5, tells us that David said, The house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. But that's not David's generous example. Because that did not come from David. That came from the spoils of war. That came from the tribute of nations. That came from his work as a great king. But it did not come from him personally. Watch David's generous example. He now makes an offering directly out of his own personal portfolio. Verse 3. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple, namely 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, which was the best premium gold of the day, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings. Of gold for the gold and silver for the silver, that is, for the work done by the craftsmen. David said, I'm giving gold and silver. And by the way, the overlaid walls, I mentioned this, there are some who believe, who think that, that literally outside of the temple was covered in gold and silver. So when the sun came up over Jerusalem, it was almost hard to look at the glory of the first temple. Absolutely stunning. 3,000 talents of gold out of David's pocketbook is 110 tons. 7,000 talents of silver is 260 tons. Today's equivalent of David's personal offering from David's wallet, 3,154,049,600. That's what David gave. A generous Example. Why does David give so much? Three words. It's right there at the beginning of verse 3. In my delight. In my delight. It was my joy to give. He didn't do it to shame anybody else into giving. He didn't do it thinking, okay, i gotta, I got to step up here. i got to pony up so Israel will, will give us. No, it was in his delight to do so. Verse 3 tells us he was so delighted to give for all of the building of the temple, that temple, again, that he would never see himself. And he was absolutely delighted. Why? Because David knew where the riches came from. He knew they weren't even his in the first place. 
They were provisions. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. What does Paul say? God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. It cracks me up. When we go to 2 Corinthians 9, how people will take verse 7 that says, each person should purpose in his own heart what he is to give. And they will latch onto that, and they'll say, see, I only have to give what I determine to give. That's New Testament giving. And I determine to give a dollar a year. And I give it cheerfully. And that's all I have to. That's what I've determined. You know, verse 8 goes on and God says, man, Paul says God's able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all sufficiency, in everything, having an abundance for every good deed. That's why God blesses us, by the way. It is not so that we can hoard, or in some cases, scrape by. The blessings of God are so we can give more. And the more we're blessed, the more we're, we have to give. And the more the Lord gives me, that I might delight in giving. You see how it just goes round and round? God blesses me more. Well, I can give more now. And off I go. And the Lord says, Rick's giving more. Give him some more. And I go, well, I got more from the Lord. I'm going to give some more. I know I'm being a little repetitive here, but I want this principle to set with us. That's why God blesses us. It is not so that we can amass more for ourselves or find more security in our money which will fail. The more we're blessed, the more we are blessed to give. It's not a drag, it's a delight. David understood that. He exemplifies this and he invites Israel to join in his generous example. Look at verse 5, the last part of it. He turns now to Israel after sharing all this and he says, Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Consecrate myself? Oh, wash my hands and prepare for some holy worship ceremony ritual thing? No. The words here are very specific. The Hebrew word for consecrate is Malay. It means to fulfill. The Hebrew word here for himself, consecrate himself, is Yad, hand. In other words, David is saying specifically, who then is willing to fulfill his hand to the Lord? What does that mean? David is calling Israel to the complete circle of abundant giving. Fulfill what's in your hand. How do I fulfill what's in my hand? Whatever God's given, I return to the Lord. I now am going to give back to the Lord. And gang, we are not talking about your time or your other resources or your ministry. We are talking about, let me be completely base and foolish for a moment, money. What do you have in your hands? What has the Lord blessed you with? Fulfilling what's in the hand. This is what David called Israel to that day. He is not talking about any other thing. He's saying, fulfill what God's given to you. Consecrate yourself. Fulfill the hand. God has filled your hands full. Now who's willing to give from what you've been given? What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 9? Verse 11, he said, You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. And that's not for your voting record. (laughs) He said, You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. David gives this generous example, and then he calls the people to the same thing. Fulfill what's in your hand. Verse 6. Then the rulers of the fathers' households and the princes of the tribes of Israel... And the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with the overseers over the king's work, watch this, offered willingly. And for the service of the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of brass, 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord and the care of Yehiel the Gershonite. And then the people rejoiced. Because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced. Joy broke out that day in Israel. Second thing in our outline, a glad response. When the people realized their opportunity to give generously, their response, their heart reaction is glad. It's joy. It's delight. We can do this too. We can follow the example of David that people rejoice. Their glad response, hear this, 
their glad response was in direct proportion to their wholehearted willingness to offer, to give. That's what makes for cheerful giving, wholehearted willingness. It's not arguing over amounts. You know, I've said this before, the whole idea of the tithe, the Old Testament principle of of tithing, bring 10% into the storehouse, the Lord says, the only time He says, test me in this, that whole principle is less than what I believe we're called to give as Christians. So I should give 10%? No! Start at 10%, if that's where you want to begin. But don't stop there. You keep, I'll tell you what, as a church, we already do. As a fellowship, whether you give to the British Christian Fellowship or not, this fellowship has determined to tithe, or we began by tithing, day one. And now what comes out is 20%. And my intention, and the intention of your shepherds, is to continue to increase that. Not to stop at, oh, we're the church that gives 10% of everything that comes in. Now, you need to understand... The more that comes in, the more that amount increases anyway. So we wouldn't have to do anything but just give 10%. But I believe the Lord wants to bless this church for the sake of the kingdom. And because of that, we will increase and continue to increase the amount that this church gives out away from itself. Because the principle is sound, whether it's for a fellowship or for an individual. And it's our glad response, our wholehearted willingness. Gang, grudging giving equals grumpiness. Generous giving equals gladness. Do you want more joy in the Lord? And I'm not saying this is the only way. There are many ways to find joy in the Lord, but this is a foundational one. This is fundamental. Give more. I'd like to be a little more joyful in the Lord this week. Give more. The principle is sound. The principle is biblical. That's why this offering attitude is so significant. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice! Rejoice! When I was a kid we had a saying, two birds were sitting on a fence. One was named Pete, one was named Repeat. Pete fell off, who was left? Repeat, okay, two birds were sitting on a fence. One was named, and we would go round and round and round. You know what? We should rename the birds. Two birds were sitting on a fence. One was named Joyce, and the other was named Rejoice. Joyce fell off. Who was left? Rejoice! Okay, two birds were sitting on a fence. One was named Joyce, and the other was Rejoice. Joyce fell off. Who's left? This is where God is calling us, gang, to the place that our joy is full. Joyce is no longer even on the fence. It's only Rejoice. It's all we have. Because every exercise of our faith, whether it has to do with money or not, every exercise of our faith should bring about joy. Have you looked at it that way before? I hadn't. There are far too many exercises of our faith, as we might call it, that don't bring us joy. They bring us exhaustion or frustration or tension. And if that's the outcome of something you're trying to do for the Lord, it is not an exercise of faith. An exercise of man, of the flesh, of will. Every exercise of our faith should bring about joy, and our giving should be no different. One of the best ways to enjoy the Lord is in your giving. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.13, he says, The proof given by this ministry is this. They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all. He's saying what you give, Church of Corinth, is not only going to bless others, but it's going to bring joy to others as they see how incredible a giving church you are. It's going to motivate them in the same way and joy will abound. And that's the impetus, the motivation for giving anything. Our offerings are not the tithe that binds. The biblical call to giving was never intended to be a religious exercise, but part of the whole faith experience, part of our learning how to trust our Father and to love our God. Parents, I wonder how many of you give grudgingly to your kids on Christmas morning. Merry Christmas, you greedy little brats. And I better get a thank you for every gift opened. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Husbands, wives, do you usually give gifts to your spouse with a tight fist? Happy anniversary. 
It's just not the way it goes. Tight-fisted giving. Hmm. Here's the necklace you wanted, which I couldn't afford. But there you go. Hope you're happy. And yet, have you ever given to the Lord that way? You know, the pastor says we're building a building, so I've got to increase somewhere. I guess we'll cut back on cable. <laughs> back to our passage. Verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29. We get to the best part. The grateful prayer. Watch this. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. By the way, you can bless the Lord. The Bible tells us so. David does it. He blesses the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion or literally kingdom. O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. And I hear in this a similarity to the prayer of the son of David when Jesus says, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Something David shared with Jesus was a sense about God in the center of everything. It's all about Him anyway. It all comes back to Him. It's His kingdom. It's His power. It's His glory. And it is not ours. And my giving is to come from the grateful recognition of my great King. The more I recognize the wonder and splendor and glory of God, the easier it is for me to give. Because I know it's His anyway. Verse 14. But who am I, David says, and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given to you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. He's not being hopeless here. He's just saying that there's just no hope for changing that. Our days are a shadow. We're a breath. We're barely here. Verse 16, David says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build a house for your holy name, watch this, it is from your hand. And all is yours. That is how a joyful giver views the offering box. That is how a joyful giver gives. It's not mine anyway. It's just not mine. It's His. All I'm doing is giving back to Him what He gave to me in the first place, which was His to begin with. It's not mine. I don't know where we ever got the idea that it was ours. This is ours to set aside and to hoard and protect and to take care of and to be secure with. Where did we get that? It's all the Father's. Verse 17, he says, Since I know, oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy I have seen your people who are present here, make their offerings willingly to you. There's integrity in joyful giving. Those who give joyfully don't worry about, you know, if people know what they give or don't know. It doesn't matter. Because it's not mine anyway. It's the Father's and so I'm just giving to Him and I'm excited about that. And the joyful giver opens his hands in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. See, the hilarious giver... I've made the example before, is not the person who goes back and drops the check in the box and goes, check me out. The hilarious giver, the cheerful giver, puts the offering in the offering box and goes, praise the Lord. Praise God I was able to give this today. Thank you, Lord, for providing for me such that I could give to your work in your kingdom. Praise the Lord. That's integrity in giving. God delights in that. Verse 18. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, I love this, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. Oh, that our intentions 
and our hearts always be joyful in offerings. That we would literally have a preservation of this kind of joy week in and week out whenever we have opportunity to give. That we would give joyfully and that God would preserve that. This is one of my new personal prayers. God, preserve that attitude in me. Don't just give it to me for today. Keep it in me. Preserve it so that I'm excited every time I have opportunity to give to the work of your kingdom. I pray that becomes the heart of this fellowship. Such generosity in giving that it would be astounding. I've got to share something. I struggle with this, whether or not I should say this at all. And if you're visiting with us today, I'm going to hang out a little laundry, the Bridge Christian Fellowship, so it's okay. We all have dirty laundry that needs to be aired. But through running the numbers, not personal, individual, we don't know, I don't know what anybody gives, but, but to check our financial pulse as a fellowship as we approach building on Troxel Road, I discovered something about our overall giving as a fellowship that kind of surprised me. And that is that for the Bridge Christian Fellowship, our giving as a fellowship is slightly below the national average for churches. I was shocked. Because it's always been an incredibly generous church. And, and I've, I've just... Jeff from time to time says, yeah, the offering was blocked for this week. And I go, you've got to be kidding. So I've always made an assumption that we were well above, and, and percentages don't matter. But I'll tell you what immediately happened in my heart when I learned that information. That we're below the national average. I thought, okay, well maybe we should start passing bags. Because... You know, then we could push a little more and it would be right in front of people a little more. And yeah, there'd probably be a little guilt, but that's okay because, you know, more would be coming in. And maybe if we do that, we can push just above the national average. And God immediately checked my spirit and said, Well, that's where the flesh goes, isn't it, Pastor Rick? Okay. I'm praying something else. I don't know that this will be the outcome. But I am praying, I'm asking God to increase all of our faith such that we don't need a loan to build our building. We can do it without debt, completely. And wouldn't that be awesome? Now, wouldn't that bring glory and honor to God? And for people to say, okay, let me get this right. You love your little barn church so much that you gave this much? And we would say, no. Mm -mm. Our little barn church is cool. But we love the Lord so much that we're just doing what He gave us to do. That would blow apart the national average. That would bless the Lord and delight His heart. That would have us right on track for the whole purpose of our fellowship being here. To bring honor and glory to the Lord. Not just as a church, but as individuals within this church. So that's, that's what I'm praying. No bank loan. That's what I desire. And I'm asking the Lord to increase our faith so that will happen. It would honor our Father. Well, that sounds great. But it would truly take some joyful giving on all of our part. Every one of us. Amounts are not what I'm talking about. Attitude. Attitude. Verse 19. David says, And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. And then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the King. And on the next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for Israel. So they ate and drank that that day before the Lord with great gladness. The last word in our study, great gladness. Offering sacrifices and giving were not burdensome at least those couple of days in Israel. It wasn't a drag It was a delight. When they come from the kind of wholehearted, joyful willingness we see here, offerings are always a delight. Now, let me give you a couple of things before we're done. I uh, left the hospital and was given some medications to take. Some prescriptions. And uh, one of the bottles, as I read it when I first got home, said, this may take some adjustment. May cause dizziness. You may not be able to operate large machinery, which, you know, I, not that I do very much. 
Be careful if you're driving a car. And I'm going, I get to take this every day. Be careful at age 44 when you're driving a car. Honey, can you take me to the store? Because I'm on medication. I was just, I was not excited about that. Three prescriptions were given to me that may take some adjustment. I'm going to give you the same. Three prescriptions here that may take some adjustment. Number one, recognize the source of all you have to offer. That's where it starts. Recognize the source. David said back in verse 12, Both riches and honor come from you. It is from your hand and all is yours. And if you struggle with giving, especially in light of your personal finances, bills, mortgages, whatever, you've got to start by recognizing it ain't your money. That's where you begin. Until you understand that, your giving's not going to increase and your faith will not increase. Recognize the source. It's not yours. It comes from another place. Psalm 50, verse 10, Every beast of the forest is mine, the Lord says. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. And everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. That's pretty clear. Who holds the purse strings? It all belongs to Him. If you have ten cents in your pocket this morning... It's from the Lord. Well, yeah, but I just found it in the parking lot walking in. Well, then put it in the offering box because I'm sure that's where it belonged in the first place. Recognize the source of all you have to offer. Every dime you have, it comes from the Father. Secondly, prescription number two. Release your offering with an open hand to the Lord. This may take some adjustment. Release your offering with an open hand to the Lord. David said, we're told in verse 9, that people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly. With joy I've seen your people, David says, make their offerings willingly to you and preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people. That's verse 17. In other words, when you give it, man, let it go. Now this is tough, but listen, don't track it. When you give it, don't ask how it's being spent. When you give it, don't use it as leverage in your church. Well, I'll just withdraw my offering if you're going to go that route. Boy, nothing makes me sicker than hearing someone say that. And I have heard people say that. If you're going to do that, I'm not going to give. My answer, don't give here. Because you're not giving out of faith. You're giving out of control. And that completely denies the entire principle of our giving. Release your offering with an open hand. Just give it. Okay, yeah, but what if the leaders misuse it or spend it wrongly? Trust me, they will answer for it. It's not your concern. You don't think God knows what's going on behind the scenes? You don't think He sees every dime and where it goes? You don't think that your shepherds and your pastor and any financial decision made are going to be held accountable for it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen this principle so many times over. The tighter the fist, the lighter the joy. If you're giving... Yeah, but I'm not sure I really like what's going on. Well, you're not giving to the church. You're giving to the Lord. Release your offering with an open hand to the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you. And you will honor me. Verse 23 of Psalm 50, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of our God. So you begin by recognizing the source, and the second prescription, releasing your offering, and number three, and more importantly than all else, listen to this, respond to the offering of the king. Respond to the offering of the king. David said, moreover, in my delight, back in verse 3, in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give. In my delight, I give. It's the great example of the king. Respond to his offering. David first laid it out before the people. This is where I'm at. And the people said, man, if that's where the king's at, that's where I'm going. Well, how do I do that? What does that mean? Listen to the offering of the Son of David, Jesus Christ, our King. Hebrews 12.2 says, Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the offering we are called to consider when we give. That's not a percentage. That was His entire life. And Jesus 
gave it willingly and joyfully. Man, if you watch Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, it's hard to see the joy in the actor's eyes. But I'm telling you, on the cross, there was joy in the heart of Jesus because He knew where this would lead. He knew that His offering, the ultimate offering, would provide the ultimate salvation. 2,000 years before any of us took our first breath, Jesus offered His whole self on the cross of Calvary. He purchased our salvation at the highest cost for the joy set before Him. And that is the joy in the offering. The joy of giving up yourself for the sake of the King. Respond to His offering. And Paul says, 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Amen? Father, we come before You asking that You'll change our hearts. That You will apply the prescriptions of Your Word to us. And whatever has happened before in our lives, we would let go. And whatever is to come in our lives would be about letting go and trusting You in faith and joy and generosity. May we, Father, not be a church that is attached to national averages. I get so sick of hearing about percentages. May we just learn to give out of joy. And Father, whether it's simply by the joyful, generous giving of this fellowship or by some miraculous giving from outside or or however You choose to do it, Father, I I pray again, I'm asking You, may may we build that building without debt. May we not have to go out and get a bank loan. May we not have to function with the business of the world, but just as a people who see the generosity of our King, May we become, in a like manner, generous with all we have, with all we've been given by You. Until You come, Lord Jesus. Until You come, I pray that You would preserve the attitude of joyful giving in the hearts and in the heart of this fellowship. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.